My name's Liam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Good to be with you tonight. Uh, Let's open up uh, the Bible again uh, to Luke chapter 16. We're going to read from verses 19 through to 31. If you are new to church, uh, you maybe don't have a Bible, why don't you see if there's one of these red or burgundy Bibles around about you in the pews. Uh, You'll find Luke 16 on page 1050. It's chapter 16, verse 19. So when I say verse, it's the tiny little numbers. Look for the verse 19. This is a passage we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, By means of an introduction, uh, cigarette packaging has been in the news a lot recently. Uh, Cigarette packaging has changed an awful lot, actually, in the last 10, 15 years. uh, Where we once had pictures of mountain ranges or nice images of purple silk. Now we have these rather large, blatant, obvious, bold boxes saying quite bold, obvious things like smoking kills. Smoking gives you lung cancer. Smoking, when pregnant, harms your baby. Some countries have adopted a little bit more of the shock tactic by by putting really some stark and surprising images on cigarette packets. And we know why this is, of course. The point of the packaging is to provide people with vital information that helps them then make wise choices concerning their life concerning their health. So the information is meant to be stark in order to help people realize the consequences of what they get themselves into when they light up a cigarette. And it's phrased as a warning on these packets in order to lead people actually to make the right choice. So that smokers should be asking then, is the information on these packets right? (laughs) Is it true? Is it trustworthy? Or is the government just all about some kind of scaremongering? Because let's face it, the multinational cigarette companies would rather not have this stuff written on their fancy packaging. Well, it's amazing how many people you can actually speak to. Even in hospitals, I used to work in a hospital myself, even in hospitals who, who find themselves surprised at the ill effects that they're experiencing on account of their smoking. They're suffering smoking-related illnesses, serious illnesses, and are shocked that it's happened to them. Well, I think this, this section in Luke chapter 16 might well have a big, bold, obvious black box surrounding the text because it's a warning that is as stark as the label on a cigarette packet. It's a warning that's intended to make us, help us make a wise choice. And the warning is not necessarily about death, it's about what happens after death. You see, Luke 16, 19 to 31 is a warning ultimately about hell. 
the, in, the, in terms of a context, we find Jesus speaking to some Pharisees. These are religious leaders of the day. A few moments before telling this story, Jesus has already been addressing some issues that they seem to be struggling with a lot. Verse 13 tells us that they love money more than they love God. Verse 15 tells us that they have found this way, almost as part of their religion, of justifying themselves in the eyes of men rather than the eyes of God. Both of those things together amount to, we don't need you, Jesus. When in fact, Jesus has been teaching all the way along, you need me. You need me to make sure that you go to heaven. So he tells them this story to warn them that people who live in the way that they are living must face the consequences. It's a story about two men living very different lives and when they die, end up in two very different destinations. And as you, as you read through this text in a second, you can't help but miss, although there are two men in here, it's really about the rich man. The focus is on him. He's the one who does the talking. He's the one who's pleading. There is a beggar, a poor man in here, but he's really there for the purposes of contrast. And here's the stark thing about this text. I want to give you a heads up on this before we read it. The stark thing about this is a man who doesn't think he's going to hell ends up in hell and ends up pleading for someone to go and tell his family, please repent, please stop the way you're going, listen to the words of the Bible because people like us, if we don't heed the warning, can end up in hell. So with those things in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, 
if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen. They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. This is God's word. So we get a sense of, of what is almost the indifference of this rich man. Uh, I, I, he, is, he loves money and luxury more than he loves God. He is someone who gives the impression of being entirely self-sufficient and in no need of real rescuing. He might be like those Pharisees, we don't need you, Jesus. And the reason we're looking at this tonight is because we see those very same uh, issues prevalent today. We hear similar comments. Uh, it was uh, apparent even these past two weeks in Word Alive as I've had conversations with one or two folks. It is amazing how many people can live with that same indifference. They, they live with no regard for God and yet when they probe them, probe them about what do you think happens when you die? It's almost this, the case that they think that actually in the end everything's going to be okay. And they don't really see how illogical that is. They don't see how those two things just don't connect. And so this is why I think a passage like this is, is utterly vital for all of us who believe that we might be clear so that we can help people see these things. And if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, I really hope you'll find this time helpful. So let's have a look at these two men to begin with. We're, we start off with two men. Two men, one rich, one poor. And in verse 19, we're introduced to this first man, and he is, he is mega rich, okay? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day day okay now there was a program on tv in the 1980s called lifestyles of the rich and famous i didn't see it for myself my tv diet in the 1980s consisted of sesame street and then thundercats uh, but that was about it uh, but i believe from what i'm told it's not too different from uh, the program that you get on mtv called mtv cribs now the basic uh, purpose of these uh, programs is to give you an inside look into the spending habits and the abodes of the superstars, the people who are utterly, utterly rich. And you walk around their house by virtue of the camera before you and, and you see, you know, they've got walk-in wardrobes that are bigger than the Hollister shop on George Street and things like that. It is, it's a, they're, they're incredible programs to watch. Generally, towards the end, what you see is the rich superstar waves to you as the camera kind of, I'm checking where I'm going, as the camera pans back down their driveway past the Aston Martin, past the Ferrari, past the Hummer, and out the massive big gates at the bottom. Rubbing it in. <laughs> this is what I've got. <laughs> You've not. Now, in the end, you're basically left at the end of these programs thinking, wow, right. These people must be seriously rich to wear what they wear and live where they live. Now, I reckon the guy that Jesus introduces to us in verse 19 would be right at home on MTV Cribs or Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Jesus tells us in verse 19, this man was dressed in purple. Now, that wasn't so much a fashion statement, but a finance statement. There were only two ways to die cloth purple in those days and both were very very expensive 
Even his underwear was posh. When it talks about fine linen that he wears, it's referring to an undergarment. Not many people had underwear in those days. I'm sad to say. But this guy is wearing the Calvin Kleins of biblical times. Now, he is in luxury every day. When it says that he lives in luxury every day, it's talking about his diet. If you look back to Luke chapter 15, there is a phenomenal story about this prodigal son. A guy who goes away, wastes his father's possessions, comes back, his dad rejoices, you were lost, now you're found. What does he do? He throws him a feast. Throws him a feast. The same word that's used to describe that feast that we expect would be, you know, a feast which marked a very special occasion. The same word is used to describe how this guy eats every day. I mean, he has breakfast at the Balmoral. He has lunch at Martin Wishart's. He has dinner at the kitchen. Sure, Gordon Ramsay comes round and, you know, cooks him a 10-course meal at night whenever he wants. That's how he eats every day. And again, we are left in no doubt. The people who hear this story as Jesus taught it in in that day were in no doubt. This man must be seriously rich to wear what he wears and live where he lives. But there's another thing. There's another thing. And don't miss this. The The people Jesus is speaking to, they're the Pharisees, right? They're the religious leaders of the day. Now, as they hear Jesus describe this man living in luxury with great wealth, they're automatically thinking, wow, he must be seriously blessed by God. There was this kind of inkling of something like a prosperity gospel at the time. They thought if you were wealthy, then God had his favor on you. And if you were poor, then God was cursing you. It was something to do with your sin. It's bad theology. It's not what we believe. But that's what they were purporting back then they thought this guy rich he must have real favor with God but imagine for a second the cameras are in this guy's house and he's waving at the window it comes past his wee Aston Martin chariot and back outside his driveway the great big now these are portico gates these are these are think Buckingham Palace style gates right these are closing and as we come out he's waving at his door but there's a blemish in this scene. Something that MTV Cribs and Lifestyles and Rich and Famous would never allow. There is a filthy beggar by his gates. That's who Jesus introduces us to. In the lifestyle of the rejected and famished. At his gate, verse 20, was laid a beggar. Now laid is far too nice a word. It's better to look at that and and think cast down or dumped even Um, why was this man dumped there in this condition well this is what this is what social benefits looked like back then in that society it was just assumed that the rich would look after those who were very poor so that's why he's been cast there because he's destitute this man is without the means to live this man is dependent on the kindness of others And keep in mind the contrast that Jesus wants us to see here. Where the rich man was clothed in purple. What does this guy have in his back? Sores. That's gross, isn't it? I mean, maybe he was diseased or probably severely malnourished. We get that hint from verse 21, which says that he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
and also that he was tended to by dogs who licked his sores. Now, this is an interesting thing. We know that dogs weren't kept as household pets back then. I think we should go back to that, you know. Um, <laughs> there were no Labradoodles, there were no Beagles, nothing like that, okay? Uh, dogs were either wild scavengers or they were work dogs. Now, given that this man has, a, has massive gates, uh, it, it, we expect he, he would live in a walled compound, and so it's likely these are guard dogs. And there was no Winnelot Prime or pedigree chum in there. Dogs didn't get fed from a can in those days. They, they were fed with what fell from the dinner table. So you get what, it's, what Jesus is trying to teach us about this man when he says he even longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. This man is so poor, is so destitute, he even longs to eat the dog food, right? It's a terrible picture for us. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, to many of us, having a dog lick you is a cute thing. You need to think again about that as well. This isn't cute. This isn't a cute thing that Jesus is wanting us to see. It's not, it's not meant to be, oh, man's best friend has come through again. No, Jesus is painting a picture of the fact that this man has absolutely zilch. He has nothing. So the likelihood is that these dogs aren't comforting him they're just eating away at some of his rotten flesh. It's, it's horrible. You're meant to feel the sh- just how disgusting this is. So Jesus provides this contrast, paints the picture for us. Outside of the house of a man who has everything is a man who has nothing. Nothing. Actually, there is one thing that the poor man has. That the rich man doesn't have did you see what it was in verse 20 he has a name Lazarus now in the bible names are significant having a name means you're known you can be identified and actually this is the only time in all of the parables all of the stories that Jesus told where he actually gives a name to any one of the characters in those stories And of course, the fact that one person is named and the other isn't is a sign that in the story, one is more important, one is valued, one is known, and the other is not. And of course, names in the Bible are very important in relation to their meaning as well. Uh, So the beggar's name is Lazarus, which means one whom God helps. Now, think about the crowd who are listening again, okay? The crowd who are listening. What did they think whenever they heard Jesus describe the rich man? Blessed by God. What do you think they heard whenever Jesus said about this beggar who's called one whom God helps? They would have chuckled to themselves, surely. But by giving him a name, Jesus is saying this poor beggar is known by God. So Jesus sets up the contrast. Two men, one wealthy with no identity, the other utterly poor, yet known personally to God. Ask yourself even now, which one would you rather be? It's an important question to consider. Especially in light of what Jesus goes on to say. Both of these guys die. Both of these guys die. He points to us and reminds us of 
the brevity of life. We will all die. How often do we float through life assuming the 80.1 years that UK statisticians suggest we will have? Life is short. In the book of James, we read, you are a mist that appears for a little while. In other words, life is transient, then vanishes. It is soon gone from sight. The Bible describes life like water spilled on the ground that, that can't be recovered because it just it, it runs away so quickly. And the brevity of life is why the Bible appeals to us to ask God, teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, help us see our end. Help us remember that we're not going to live forever like this. So help us be wise in the choices that we make. Because death comes to us all, but as this story continues, death is not the end. You see, here in this parable, we see that our, our personalities survive death in a conscious state and are sustained in one of two destinations, heaven or hell. Look with me at verse 22. Here we see heaven is real and Lazarus is there. Verse 22, the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, again, think about the crowd. Think about the people Jesus is speaking to. Hear their gasps. <gasps> no way. Remember, they're thinking rich man blessed, poor man cursed. For Jesus to say straight away, Lazarus died and was carried to Abraham. Abraham's side? Heaven? Abraham, of course, being the father, the figurehead of God's people, Israel, and all who would come in faith to God. It's incredible. It's a surprising thing that this poor man is carried off to heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to picture what heaven is like. Most of us, I think, would move on from the kind of childish expectations where it's, uh, it's a place filled with sweeties or footballs and so on. But I, I have heard some people try and describe heaven in a way that doesn't look like it's moved that much further on. Uh, some people still, in other words, people want heaven to be something that, is, that serves what they really want and they really desire. So I, heard, I used to work beside one woman in Dundee who said, I don't care what's in heaven as long as there's an Asda because Asda meets all my needs. I was like, we really need to have a talk. <laughs> but it's impossible to describe. The only person who's really, well, Jesus has been there and come back, but he didn't, he didn't talk about what it was like much. The Apostle Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, tells us that he's gone and he's seen what heaven is like. But again, he comes back and he says, I don't really know what to say. And you're like, oh, come on, tell us what it's like. The Bible uses many different ways to describe it. It's, it's often figurative language. It's metaphorical. It, it certainly talks about what it will feel like. It's a place of joy, a place of delight, a place of happiness. It's a place also that that joy and happiness is, of course, helped by the fact that there is an absence of sin. There is an absence of suffering. There is an absence of pay, uh, tears, an absence of pain. It's glorious to the point that I'm sure you could take the best moment in your life and you could 
multiply its intensity by infinity and its duration by eternity and you still not get close to what heaven feels like. But I wonder if you've ever thought of heaven as being described as being by Abraham's side. Or as some of the older translations put it, resting on Abraham's bosom. Brilliant. I've never thought of heaven like that. But the whole point of it is to help us see that actually it is a place where where we receive such honor and kindness that we did not deserve to sit with this this father figure, this figurehead of the people of God, one who was credited with righteousness through his faithful belief in God who made promises to him. To be with him is wonderful. To be at his side is a place of honor. And you get the hint that it's at a feast. It's about faith, you see. This beggar dies and is carried to heaven because even in his poverty, he must have had this faith in God for he was known by God. He was one whom God helps. So we see heaven is real and Lazarus is there. But we also see hell is real and the rich man is there. The rich man also died, it says in verse 22, and was buried in hell where there was torment. And again, hear the gasps from the crowd. They would be utterly shocked at this. Blessed by God? Ended up in hell? But, 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 but surely you've got that the wrong way around. It's just a slip of the tongue. Do you want to rehearse that again? But no, he's got it right. And I wonder if you've considered, as you may have considered heaven to be a real place, place have you considered that hell is a real place? There's some people have used bizarre images of demons clawing at your back and barbecuing you with pitchforks and things like that. But that's not really the, the picture that the Bible presents, though it does, again, use mostly figurative and metaphorical language to paint for you that it is a picture, or a place, sorry, of torment, of agony. In other words, it's not a pleasant place. You really don't want to go there. And Jesus, of course, taught about hell more than anyone else. And he, of course, he did it carefully. He'll still use words like anguish and torment. He will also, in other parables, describe hell as the lake of fire. But he talks about it as a real place. It's not just scaremongering. It's real. And I would be lacking integrity as a minister of of the gospel if I held this back and I want if you're here tonight you're not a Christian you need to understand that Christians don't talk about hell in so, flippantly at all we don't think that we're believers because we are better than anyone else or brainier than anyone else we're, we're believers because we're all Lazaruses we are those whom God has helped despite our filthy condition. In reality, I and we are just Christians. We are Christians who are are poor beggars telling other beggars where to find bread, as someone put it. I think we're also given a clue that actually we don't speak flippantly about this. We don't gloat or glory over people's damnation. That's a terrible thing to think. I think we see this even in Abraham when he looks down 
we're going to see in a second, in response to the, the, the rich man's re- first request, he starts by calling him son, child. There's, there's pathos in that. There's, there's a sadness in that, a sense of tragedy. And that's how I hope it would come across tonight. Jesus, the most tender-hearted man who ever lived, saw the need to be frank about the reality of this place. He loved people too much not to warn them of what awaits those who don't believe in him. And the rest of the parable really teaches us more about what this place is like, what can and can't be done from there. In two pleas, two requests. The first request that the man makes in verse 24 is, is effectively comfort me. Lazarus, who once longed for a tiny piece of food, but now we have the rich man in hell longing for even one drop of water to drip from, the mat, from Lazarus's finger. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, I don't know what you think when you first read that. No doubt there are feelings of sympathy for the man in some respects. But isn't it surprising what he asks for? Isn't it surprising what he asks for, given the fact that he looks up and he recognizes two people? Well, there's the guy I'm descended from, and there's the guy who used to live on my street. What does he think? Ah, someone can serve me. Someone could serve me. You'd think if he recognized who Lazarus was, he'd begin by saying, rubbish, I'm in trouble. I've made a wrong choice. I've done something wrong. You would think there would be words of apology or some kind of reference to an ill feeling, but he doesn't even address Lazarus. It's almost as if he disregards him just as he did in life. And the picture really does, I think, disagree with the idea that God somehow throws people into hell who are people who are saying all the while, let me out, please let me out. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to end up here. And God saying some kind of, no. It seems, it's contrary to that actually, that even in hell, this man, this rich man, cannot imagine giving up his self-importance. It's like he still thinks of himself as deserving of something. He still thinks he should be served in death, even as he was in life. And Abraham's response is straightforward in verse 25. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. In other words, remember how you took the gifts of God's And paid no respect to God himself in your life. You love money and stuff more than you love God. You were indifferent towards him. Still thinking that you were going to be okay in the end. But you did not listen to Moses and the prophets. You didn't listen to the Bible. If you did, you would have been warned. So actually, all the comfort that you would like, you've had it in that time that is described simply as a mist and now for eternity there is agony remember your wealth and how you refused to even help the man at your gate one man at your gate 
your heart was hard as you saw his suffering, even his sores. Besides, he says in verse 26, between us a great, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. See what Jesus is saying here in this parable. When you die, that's it. You can't do deals later. You can't scrub up somehow and get a transfer. If you are without a heed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this life, if you are without repentance in this life, by the time you die, it will be too late. There is a great chasm. It's described in that way to tell us that it, it is impossible to travel between the two places. And that in itself should make this one of the most, in fact, it should make it the most important and urgent thing that we think of if we're here tonight and we're not Christians. It's vital to think through because eternity depends on it. Your eternity depends on it. So he asks in the first instance, comfort me, but doesn't get a favorable response. And in hopelessness, all he can do is plead for his family. See his request in verse 27. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. In other words, send Lazarus back. Do something miraculous. Give them a sign. Now that's exactly what these religious leaders were asking from, for, from Jesus, asking for from Jesus the whole time. Show us a sign, then we'll believe. Show us a sign, then we'll believe. What did Jesus do? Showed sign after sign after sign to authenticate the claim that he made that he was the Son of God, bringing to them the good news of God that sinners who turn and put their faith and trust in him will have eternal life. But they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Abraham's response. They have Moses and the prophets. He's talking about the Bible. In those days, they, ha they didn't have as much of it as we did, but they had enough. Enough to tell them about God and who he is. That he is the majestic, wonderful creator of all things. Who made humankind to be the vice regents over his creation. He loved humankind. Humankind, men and women, are the only ones who bore his image. They were the ones that he chose to be a reflection of his character so that people might know him. He made us to love him and be in relationship with him. But Moses and the prophets gave a good account of the fall of humankind. Where in our rebellion, our parents, first parents, turned away from God to live their own way, indifferent towards him and his instruction, with a preference for satisfying their own passions and their desires. Yet Moses and the prophets is sufficient to teach us that God said he would not leave his people without rescue. He would not leave them under the threat of his wrath and his damnation, but he would send someone Someone who would be both a king and a servant. A suffering servant. And Moses and the prophets testify that all, to come, all who come to him in faith and repentance can be forgiven of their sin, 
can have that relationship that was broken by the fall, restored through faith in the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who at the very end of this gospel, takes us as he's risen from the dead, having paid the price for our sin on the cross, speaks to his disciples, leads them in a Bible study in Moses and the prophets and says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. They have Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. What's a rich man's response to that? No, Father Abraham. <laughs> no. He's correct in Abraham's theology. It'd be far more impressive. We don't want some words on a page. It'd be far more impressive if someone just rises from the dead. Do you hear what he's saying? I can think of a better way. I've got an idea, Abraham. Or maybe it's because he knows his brothers well. They have a Bible on their bookshelf. They have a church down the road, but they have no thought for God. Because they are self-sufficient in the way they live. And they love money and stuff more than they love God. See what Abraham, is, uh, what the rich man is doing here again. He's subtly trying to excuse himself. It's almost like he's arguing that maybe if he would have repented if someone had come back from the dead and just told, you know, if someone had just come back from the, the dead, a, a dead relative or something and said, it's rubbish, don't go there, it's awful, I'm, you'll be in agony there. Then I would have believed. In other words, God, you've not done enough. Again, the man is trying to excuse himself. To justify himself. And again, I can't think of one place in the Bible where it's even suggested that people who are in hell are actually repentant or sorry. It's, it's presented as a place, even here, where people still try to blame everybody else except themselves for the situation they're in. We've not been warned enough. But verse 31 tells us, Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Of course, we have an account in John chapter 11 of a guy called Lazarus, one whom God helps, dead in the tomb four days. One who is, whose tomb is visited by Jesus says, roll the stone away. But they say, he's been dead four days. He's going to be decaying. This isn't a good idea. Roll it away. Lazarus come forth. What happens? The man comes alive again. What do we read immediately after that? Sure, you read some put their faith and trust in Jesus. But what do you read about these religious leaders? They were like, this is getting us nowhere. And they plotted as to how they might kill Jesus and Lazarus. So Abraham says their lack of repentance isn't down to the fact that they don't know there's an afterlife and there's a judge. They know that. The lack of repentance comes down to the fact that they are indifferent towards the message of the Bible. He certainly didn't think that his disregard of these words and instructions would mean that he ended up in hell, but that's exactly what happens. Listen, when we are indifferent to the message of the Bible and the God of the Bible, when we love money more than we love God, and when we seek to justify ourselves before other men and women, rather than seek true justification, true pardon, through uh, from God's then this is the end that we will face who are you in this parable do you see yourself in the rich man do you see yourself blaming God for not showing up enough for you he has given us sufficient testimony of who he is 
he has given us hundreds of years of a revelation of himself where he has taken and used men and spoken through them to give us his words and have them accessible for us so that knowing God is actually within our grasp. He can be known through the Bible. Maybe you see yourself more like the people in verse 28, the ones who are still alive, the ones who need to be warned that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. Because we are the, maybe we are the ones whose destinies still have to be decided. Well, this parable teaches that our destinies will be decided by what we do with the truth of the Bible. There is a place of peace and joy to pursue and a place of torment to flee. Hell is not a happy place. I've heard people say, when I die, I want to go to hell because that's where my friends will be. Thinking it's going to be some kind of party. But the rich, anyway, if hell is such a terrible place with no comfort and consolation, why would you presume to have friends in hell? But the rich man in this story tells us he doesn't want his friends with him. He doesn't think hell is one big party. Hell is for people who don't repent. Both good people and bad people who don't repent. But he would be calling on us to repent, to turn away from our sinful ways and our indifference towards God and put our faith and trust in him. How is all of this possible? It's possible because he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to die on a cross for our sin. And to rise again from the dead three days later. Promising that those who put their faith and trust in him will live. Not just in the terms of that they will be who they were made to be in this life. But live for eternity when this mobile home of theirs expires. What a glorious, glorious thought. Friends, we are not left without witness. This is why we have spent two weeks on the streets unashamedly holding forth the word of truth, the Bible, to say to people, read it, have one, take it away. These are the words of life. Shall we bow our heads and let's pray together.